0: So, uh, page 4, proclamation by word. Uh, the, the witness of the kingdom is primarily accomplished through a bold proclamation of the word. And so, uh, you get this in, uh, in Acts 2, obviously, an example of it with Peter. and Acts 3, at the temple with the, the paralytic that's healed, and he says, Men of Israel and a proclamation by word in Acts 4, when he is before the Sanhedrin, and uh, and he boldly proclaims to them that salvation and inclusion in the kingdom is by no other name given under, he- under heaven except the uh, stone that they had rejected and crucified. And they took note because of his bold witness that uh, he was uneducated. And uh, Acts 4... After they come out of, uh, out of prison and they, they lift their voice together in context to that persecution, they, uh, they lifted their voice together, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And so to them that means a whole lot. Again, when they say Sovereign Lord who created the heavens and the earth, they have in mind that, again, the Creator going to restore everything. You spoke by the mouth of uh, your holy prophet David and Psalm 2 concerning the coming of the Messiah, his inheritance of the nations, that the nations would persecute him, and which is what they did, uh, Pontius Pilate and uh, and uh, the Jews. Uh, In leadership at that time, he says, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they prayed, the place they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's clear what the word of God is, obviously, from chapter 2 and 3 concerning the day of the Lord. Acts 8, for example, those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John. You have the whole bit with Simon. Then when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, John and Peter returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Acts 10, He commanded us to preach and to testify. While He was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Page 5, you just get all the way through the book of Acts. They're so prevalent, you know, immediately upon Paul's conversion in Acts 9. He's preaching and he's teaching in the synagogues, arguing persuasively that Jesus is, is the Christ. Acts 13 Paul and Barnabas are sent on their way from Antioch by the Holy Spirit. They arrive in Salamis and they proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. At Iconium they went as usual into the Jewish synagogues and spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do uh, signs and wonders. Acts 17 on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus who I proclaim proclaimed to you is the Christ. And then they go down to Berea and are teaching there. And then in, uh, in verse uh, 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they too uh, went there too, aggravating the crowds. Acts uh, Acts 18, after this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogues, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 19, while while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior to Ephesus. He entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Acts 20, I consider my life, so this is uh, on his way back through on that same journey, and he calls the the elders of Ephesus, and he's telling them uh, that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He says, I consider my life not worth, worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, now I know that none of you, among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. I have not hesitated to pro- hesitate to proclaim to you. And then the book of Acts, obviously, after that he goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's preaching to the Sanhedrin. He's preaching to Felix, to uh, to Agrippa. He is he uh, he goes to Rome, and then the book concludes with the last two verses. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you just get that theme all the way through the book of Acts of bold proclamation by word concerning the kingdom of God and Jesus as the Messiah. And so it's uh, I remember when I was in college and... uh, i would I would go to about three different campus meetings every week because I really didn't have anything else to do and was zealous and uh and I remember I would always go to the the campus crusade meeting and Crusade is so zealous on on witnessing and sharing the gospel and I remember they had a guy in one time and it always just stuck in my memory and i I remembered it over the years constantly and he was uh he he traveled and spoke at campus crusade uh, groups throughout on different campuses throughout the nation, and he would talk about how you know, he would talk about how there's so much emphasis on the silent witness and, and witnessing people to people through, uh, through how we act and live. and he was like, "I'm sorry, but the Word of God tells us to speak and declare the gospel." And you are not going to win people alone with your lifestyle without speaking and declaring to people. And I remember just sitting there going, "Well, that's true." <laughs> and uh, but you get—I mean, obviously, you get uh, the other side of that where people just uh, uh, preach and, and talk to people, but their lives their lives don't uh, don't communicate love for the people they're preaching to. And so uh the two have to go in tandem but there is the very real prominent aspect of the mission of the church in the New Testament in the book of Acts as declaring the forgiveness of sins unto uh inclusion in the kingdom and resurrection. Mm-hmm. Point B, ministry of the word, evangelism, proclamation of the kingdom was considered the culmination of the purpose of the apostles before the second coming. So like Acts 6, the twelve summon together the full number of disciples and say it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we uh, will appoint to this duty, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so uh, there's just that aspect of... um, and the the point here is not um well we'll get to that next week when we when we dive into prayer but the focus here is the issue of serving the the uh the widows and the orphans in their midst and that they they just like Vincent Donovan they had to give up something so that they could continue to walk in a consistent manner in this aspect of what they knew they were called to it wasn't like they were I mean it wasn't like they were dishing off all responsibility of feeding the poor and taking care of the widow and orphan. You know, I've actually heard people preach that this was the great fall of the church in the New Testament, which it's not that at all. I mean, Stephen was one of the the ones appointed in chapter 6 here to take care of the widows and then immediately after that in chapter 7 it says he was a godly man uh whatever who walked in signs and wonders and then he was the first martyr that that uh, was killed so there's no dichotomy between the two but there is a you know when you guys go out when when we're in ministry this thing this thing has to really be worked at to keep them in a healthy relationship with each other these three aspects and that you know, like Vincent Donovan, you have to give up administration and you have to give up a bunch of this stuff and it just takes intentionality. That's my point in it. But I want to, I, I'm i working so heavily on proclamation of the gospel because I want you to have a real feel of the nitty gritty of that this is what they actually gave themselves to as a lifestyle of... Telling people about the kingdom of God and, and Jesus as the Messiah. Um, so as the first Thessalonians one and two, along these lines, uh, Paul says they they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve the living God, to wait from His Son from heaven. Whom he raised from the je- whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. And so he's rehearsing Acts sixteen and seventeen, uh, his missionary journey, and obviously the persecution that he endured in Thessalonica. When he went to Berea, and then they actually came after him from there, and so this is what he's rehearsing that they're under persecution and difficulty and backlash for teaching the truth, so to say, but it didn't uh, it didn't dampen them to 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 press on a bold proclamation that this is the truth this is what we're declaring etc um cause I feel that I feel that same bit. It's obviously a completely different context, but, uh, you're just going to get it. It's, it's like Jimmy said, you know, when he went back you went back to your church, you know, in the fall and you just, they asked you to speak and you speak simple message on the resurrection of the body. And some people love it. And some people just get really angry, not knowing why they get angry, but there's just a, a lot behind it. And, uh, a lot of unseen forces behind the the uh behind Gnosticism that are bigger than we know anyway so uh so as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the Gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Romans 15, where he uh, you know, doesn't want to build on anyone else's foundation, fully proclaiming the gospel of Christ and the whole region. Point C, Paul's primary charge in, to his main disciple, Timothy, was the proclamation of the kingdom. And so, uh, I just love this because you get just like, you know, you can almost envision Paul writing to Timothy. You can feel throughout the letter just his love for the man and his, I mean, he really wants to establish this young man in sound instruction, sound lifestyle that really will produce people that will endure faithfully on a narrow path and not get lost into uh, lost into confusing uh, doctrine and understanding that leads them to not live a diligent lifestyle day to day of fighting the flesh and walking in righteousness and etc. And so, but you get, he says, "In, in the presence of our God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. And so it's just like, boom, listen, in light of the kingdom, this is how you need to live. And this is what you need to give yourself to it's just so like, yeah, I mean, it's just straightforward. You just take it for yourself, you know, like this is, this is what I need to live by. This is how I, I need to orient my life. I give you this charge, preach the word, the word of the judgment of the living and the dead, his appearing and his kingdom. This is, you know, three main points on the On the right hand, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine concerning his appearing in the kingdom. Instead, instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And this is just like you know, I get in seasons where I'm like, Lord, you really care about your son. You really care about the resurrection. You really care about these things. And the early church fathers, the first two centuries of them, they really cared and they fought hard to keep the resurrection of the body front and central. And then Origen ended up kind of winning out in the Constantinian shift. And like nobody, it's it's not even a battlefield for so much and so long. And there's you know, just little pockets of of uh, you know uh, people who believe in kiliasm and people who believe in in millennialism throughout history. There's little pockets here, there, and everywhere. But you look back over church history, and there's just a great number of teachers who teach the people and itch their ears. And it really is. It's the same reason. Kiliasm was overturned in the early church. It's the same reason that that the resurrection of the body, that fight over sound instruction was lost, was because you had the church holistically buy into wealth and power during the Constantinian shift and the ending of persecution and, and martyrdom within the church. And it's I mean, it really is like you look at it and you know, I I find in my own life seasons where I have more intensity and focus and it's real and the scriptures are alive and revelatory concerning the kingdom are the seasons where I'm really focused on restraining and fighting against the flesh. And it's the seasons when I'm just kind of, you know, doodling along and I'm really concerned about, you know maintaining all the crap and keeping all the machines running literal and figurative and administration and just all the cares of this life that the scriptures are not like alive to me and revelatory and I'm not restraining the flesh and I'm just kind of my eyes are wandering and I'm looking at buying stuff all the time and I'm just like you know what I'm saying like it really is when you're when you're not the reason for the not sound instruction really is because, just like he says, a desire to, to, to suit their own desires. They'll gather around many teachers to say what their itching ears want. They'll turn their ears away from the truth of the, the judging of the living and the dead, the appearing, the second coming, and the kingdom. They'll turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths but you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. And so there's just that... What was, I, what was the point of all that? I got lost in commentary on the passage. Oh, that the main point was to preach the Word and do the work of an evangelist. Discharge your duty as an evangelist of uh, of preaching... Uh, the second coming in the kingdom and the resurrection. Um, 2 Timothy 2, that just gives a little more context. that uh, um, uh, Saying the same thing. I'm not going to go into it. So, proclamation by deed, page 7. Um, And this is just where I want to... Uh, balance out word and deed together and that uh, that a lifestyle really can witness to the kingdom to come. The two have to go hand in hand, but you can't break the two apart. And so I put the, uh, the famous quote by St. Francis, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary use words. It wasn't actually a quote by St. Francis, um, but has come to... Uh, uh, Everybody quotes it as from St. Francis, and it's actually officially um, endorsed by the Franciscan movement. Uh, but the point is, is that uh, you get this idea th- uh, throughout the New Testament, like Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so you do everything... Uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you speak in the name of the Lord and you act and live in the name of the Lord in light of His appearing and His uh, in His kingdom. Second Thessalonians 2, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God our Father who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And then he, the next verse is, and pray for us that the word of the Lord may uh, run swiftly or advance or whatever translation you have. And so, but that's as the context is the eternal hope of the resurrection and the, the uh, and the word of the Lord uh, and us being strengthened in word and deed together. 1 John 3 by this we know love that he laid down his life for us we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does the love of God abide in him little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and truth and so the point is is that you have the world's you have the world's goods you have you have wealth during this age and the lord brings people into your life who are in a place of need and you shut them off how like how do how could they ever hear you say good news to the poor that when jesus returns the poor of the earth will rejoice in him psalm 72 How can you preach good news to the poor that that the Messiah is going to care for all of the poor of the earth, that there's not going to be wickedness and oppression when Jesus returns and yet you don't care for them and and give to them in, in that context? How can the love of God expressed in the age to come and the coming kingdom, how can that be communicated to somebody unless you actually do it? you see what i'm saying i mean it's not like and this is why you know this is why it, it really is this is why you get the social gospel critique of uh conservative evangelicalism that all you preach is the gospel all you do is preach the gospel and what you know that's a heavenly destiny and you don't actually do anything to help anyone and this was one of the main reasons that the great century of missions in the 1800s came to a screeching halt in the early 1900s especially in the 1920s when you had all of this you know rhetoric coming up because it was just so heavy during the 1800s the student volunteer movement going out and preaching you know preaching the gospel and it was all about getting souls saved and it was all real heavy in this context and it was good because at least it was focusing on the end game with some real uh, determination and intensity, but there was almost no addressing of people's needs. And so there was just this inherent void of people experiencing the love of God because you're telling me God loves me is going to take me to heaven, but He doesn't care about me now, so I just can't make the dots connect. You know what I mean? And so... In light of the coming kingdom, rather than in light of a heavenly and de- an immaterial heavenly destiny, it's right you can't connect the dots. There is no connecting the dots. There is no reason to care for people's material needs if your destiny is immateriality. You there you can't connect the dots. You know what I mean. And so, but in light of the coming kingdom, in which. Creation will be restored, and there'll be righteousness on the earth. Then it's very easy to connect the dots, and say, "Yeah, man, here's a hamburger." And let me talk to you about how the earth is going to be when Jesus returns, and let me talk to you about how you ended up on the street, and and the, that it's really not right that you ended, or however the situation that you're in. You know what I mean? And so there's a. There's a real connect point between caring for people now and and how God will care for people in the age to come and a revelation of the two connected together. That God will care for me in the age to come and he's caring for me now. You know what I mean? And so... Uh, Point A, the church's witness of the kingdom is not only by word but also deed. The church witnesses to the righteousness and holiness of the coming kingdom by walking in righteousness and holiness in this age, thus, the primary thrust of the Sermon on the Mount. So, Matthew 5, again, like we've talked about before, you clearly have the declaration in Matthew 4 the kingdom of heaven's at hand, he's healing the sick as signs, demonstrations of the powers of the age to come. You have a great multitude following him around at the end of chapter 4. And then chapter 5, he gets up and he sits, which is... Where did, where did we read that? Oh, just the idea of him sitting down is him taking the position of a rabbi. So he sits on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so everybody understands that he's functioning in rabbi mode to to uh, To talk about and expound upon the law, and so, and in their minds, the law is pointing towards the coming Messiah and and the law that will go forth from Jerusalem. And so, he sits down and says, "The kingdom of heaven is at hand." Those who lit, who are this way, poor in spirit, mourn, etc. And one of these days, we'll work through. Um, a, uh, all the Old Testament passages and a lot of those, but these are the people that will be blessed, and they they will inherit the kingdom. If you if you want to inherit the kingdom and you want to be blessed, then this is how you need to live. And then he, the next sentence after that, Matthew five, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And then what's the next verse? I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, etc., etc. And then he starts expounding upon the law and the prophets. You heard it said, don't kill people. But I'm telling you, don't hate people. He's not He's not changing. He's simply sitting as a rabbi saying, listen, if you want to inherit the kingdom, then this is how you need to be. You need to obey the spirit of the law, why the law was given. The law was given to point you to the day of the Lord. There won't be anger in the coming kingdom. There won't be lust in the coming kingdom. The meek will inherit the kingdom. Those who mourn over wickedness, they will inherit the kingdom. Those who are poor in spirit the poor will inherit the kingdom. Those who are generous with their with their wealth, like the Proverbs, those who give freely, they will be blessed. Those who are peacemakers, who hunger and thirst for righteousness to be established upon the earth, these guys will inherit the kingdom and you need to walk according to the law in that spirit, restraining from unrighteousness because that's how it's going to be in the age to come. And in that way, you have the bit about being a light on a hill and a lamp and it doesn't there's no like it's a it's a it's a straight flow you know if you are meek and you relate to the law in such a way that demonstrates the righteousness of the age to come then you are a light to the earth because throughout the prophetic scriptures the coming kingdom is pictured as the day and so you are in the midst of the night a light that imitates the day to come. And you walking, you relating rightly to the Mosaic law, the way it was meant to be related to, and your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and teachers of the law because they were not relating rightly to the law. They were not killing people, but they hated everybody. They were not committing adultery, but they their, their minds were filled with lust and unrighteousness. You know what I mean? They weren't relating rightly to the law that was supposed to check them and keep them on a narrow path. You know, many will come to me on that day and say, "Lord, Lord," you know, like the seven sons of Sceva, even driving people out. But they they weren't walking on a narrow path, really believing that they were going to be held accountable for all of their deeds and actions for the for the state of their heart, like Romans two, and so. So like Romans 13 this is Paul is Paul is saying the exact same thing as the sermon on the mount. And so right before that if you flip to Romans 13 So in Romans 13 he says let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself, the the golden rule like in Sermon on the Mount. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So this is all Jesus is, Paul is relating to the law the same way in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is relating to the law. And he says the same thing. Paul says the same thing as Jesus says about being a light. On a hill. And so he says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and sexual drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy but clothe yourselves with Christ Jesus and don't gratify the desires of, of the flesh. And so his point is that the Mosaic law and all the commands right before that are meant to do the same thing. That's the spirit of the Mosaic law. Live as in the daytime. You see what I'm saying? And so then he works in chapter 14 and works through some of the issues of eating and this, eat this and don't eat this, etc., etc. And Paul is like, listen, you're weak in your faith concerning the kingdom and the daytime if you get hung up over these things. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of, verse 17, it's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. And so it's the same thing. You live as in the daytime, and the daytime isn't a matter of specifics over eating and drinking and special days. Those things are only meant to bolster your faith in the prophetic calendar in the you know unclean things there won't be in the kingdom to come, unrighteous things there won't be in the kingdom to come, and the specific details those aren't the real matter, like he says in matthew twenty three you're right. You should tithe your cumin, you should do these things, but you should have obeyed the real matters of the law, maintaining justice and righteousness and not neglected the former. And so it's it's the same, it's the it's all the same thing is that you have to relate to the law and you have to relate in righteousness in light of the kingdom to come. And in that light, your light and in in that context, your light will shine before men because you will reflect the light of the day to come. If you haven't heard this before, I know it may sound kind of strange and weird, but it, it I mean it's just the simple it's the simple logic found throughout the scriptures, like Isaiah fifty six comes to mind, you know, Isaiah fifty five. Oh Isaiah fifty five a swirl on Isaiah 54. It's just awesome. So Isaiah 55, which you know, you get the you get the direct quoting out of it from Revelation 22. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Give ear to me here, that your soul might live. You know, the salvation of your soul, an everlasting covenant with David, the the offspring and seed of David. I make him a witness. I've endowed him with splendor, verse 5, and then he goes on. This is how I may have mercy towards the wicked. My word's going to go forth like the rain, and it's going to produce a harvest. In the resurrection, verse 12, you'll go out in joy. You'll be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst forth into song. The trees will clap their hands, because all of creation is groaning, longing for the revelation of the sons of God and the and the uh heirs and co-heirs with Christ an everlasting sign then verse then chapter 56 there's obviously no you know break in the chapter when it was originally written and so this is what the Lord says in context to that maintain justice do what's right for my salvation is close at hand my righteousness will soon be revealed blesses the man who does this who holds fast etc and so you get that you know, in light of the righteousness and the salvation that's at hand, maintain justice. Do what's right, because it will be done right by David, my servant, in the age to come. Um, uh, Hebrews 10: Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. And so the spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, as we see the day approaching, the, the logic is real simple, that we are, uh, we are a light to the world in our love and righteousness. Um, and then 1 Corinthians 3, page 8. five more minutes here. By their lifestyle, the church witnesses to the world concerning what kind of behavior will be acceptable in the age to come. And so whenever you get all of these passages on inheriting the kingdom of Christ, this is the logic behind it. The Galatians 5, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. In context to the acts of the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, because in the age to come, you will be you're the deposit of the Holy Spirit, you will receive the full inheritance of the Holy Spirit and raised in glory, and the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God and filled with the Holy Spirit in righteousness, peace, and joy. And so the whole earth will bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the age to come of peace, love, joy, self-control, patience, etc., etc. He says, "...but the acts of the flesh are obvious." Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, etc. And so his logic is, I mean, it's just like, it's so simple logic that... This is how it will be in the age to come. This is how it is now. And it won't be like that in the age to come. And so therefore, you don't live like that. Because you fear God, and because you want to make it clear to people. Because if... I mean, it's just the it's the simple logic behind Christian ethic. You know what I'm saying? Like, why do we live holy? Why? Just because God has an arbitrary... Set of standards and rules, and so this is what happens in the missions movement. When you get out on the field, and you know you're in some uh, East African tribe, and you have a culture of a missionary that establishes that righteousness is about not eating, you know, betel nut chew or whatever. And you know what I'm saying? And you get this weird set of standards of righteousness that are just based arbitrarily on what whoever thinks is the will of god as a standard ethereal standard of righteousness. And it's like any man can establish what is righteous. And the way you establish the christian ethic of how we ought to live and how we ought to function is by revelation of the spirit of how it's going how it was in the beginning with adam, how we were designed to function. We were not designed to function sexually with each other of the same sex. Because we weren't created that way, male and female. Males were not meant to mate with males. And it won't be that way in the future. Males will not mate with males. You know what I'm saying? And and that is how you determine a Christian ethic and a Christian moral standard by which we live. It's determined by how it was designed to be in the beginning and how it will be in the age to come. And in that way... You can interpret the Mosaic Law and you can establish a community of, you know, of, in any different culture and context, you won't establish a set of rules about what godliness is based on things that don't matter. And you get that, I mean, stories like that are countless in mission circles where the people in the village see the missionaries as far more ungodly as the unbelievers in the village. Because the unbelievers in the village, they care about relationships and righteousness and love towards one another and respect and honor towards one another. And the missionary doesn't care about any of that. You know, he's just, he's all filled with anxiety and fear and he doesn't love people and he's got all these arbitrary rules and it's just like, You know, when we have in light about how it will be in the age to come, we can establish in any cultural context, this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is how it will be in the kingdom of God. This is what we want our lives to imitate. Love, joy, peace, righteousness with one another, caring for one another, proclaiming, you know, when we fall into sin and wickedness, bringing a brother back in love and discipline, etc., etc., etc. Uh, Ephesians 5, be imitators of God. We've worked through this before. Uh, immoral people have no inheritance. Um, Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, etc., etc., because of these the wrath of God is coming. Uh so point C, walking in the righteousness of the age to come is meant to confirm the message of the church to an unbelieving world. And so again, First Corinthians five, just to hit the idea again, it's not a it's not an abstract concept that Paul is moving back and forth with in First Corinthians three, with the day of the Lord burning all of the things, you know, the works and deeds that uh that don't endure are not made of gold and silver, etc. He doesn't move from idea to idea. He, uh, he argues in 1 Corinthians 4 that there's dissension among your midst. But he says, I will come and, and I will see what these men who are causing dissension in your midst, if their words are with power or just arguments that cause dissension and don't bring whatever. And then he makes the quote, 1 Corinthians 4.20, The kingdom of God is not a matter of words, but of power. And so, again, his point is not like there's a kingdom now, and then he moves straight into 1 Corinthians 5 in the next verse and says, you know, there's immorality in your midst. And then chapter 6, there's, you know, you have disputes in your midst, and you take each other to court. And then immediately in chapter 6, verse 9, he goes right back to saying, Unbelievers, greedy people, idolaters, immoral people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so there's just a clean flow of the day of the Lord and the coming kingdom. And this, in light of those things, this is how we live. And we don't have envy and jealousy about who we follow, whether it be Paul or Apollos. We don't have immorality in our midst. And we don't have disputes in our midst over financial, over over uh, over Financial stuff, and we take each other to court because all those things the immoral people, the greedy people the 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 envious jealous people th- th- those people won't inherit the kingdom of God, and so you can take first Corinthians chapter three to chapter six, verse ten, or whatever it is i don't know if some of you are following me, but these are just some of the games I constantly play in my head of integrating ideas. So chapter six, verse uh, uh, verse nine, "Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, ad- adulterers, prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were, but you accepted as truth the day of the Lord and the coming kingdom. Therefore you live in light of it. And you can form your life as a, as a pattern to it. And so it's a clean flow between 1 Corinthians four, uh, 3 and like verse 13. His work will be shown on that day because the day will bring it to light and he will receive with fire. Fire will test the quality of each man's work, etc. Right through chapter 4, chapter 5, into chapter 6. A clean flow of Christian uh, morality and, and ethic in light of the coming kingdom. <laughs> so, did I grind it in enough? <laughs> I just get out. That's my point, though. I mean, that's really my point is each week I just want to grind in so that there's just a simplicity that you can't get out of your mind with a nice, handy little chart. Where did it go? Yeah. I don't believe Christianity because of hypocrisy people don't really do in deeds what they proclaim in words. Yeah. And the missionaries always they live in the rich neighborhoods. They bring all of their they bring, you know, they when the British you know came into China and they would just set up their mission stations and they had they shipped in all their British furniture and all their British tea and all their you know sets and it's just like and Hudson Taylor I mean got like massively persecuted for wearing indigenous clothes and growing out his hair or whatever wearing the thing it's just like it just it's crazy No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. You live what you preach. And that's, you know, like, you know, when I preached on martyrdom last semester and I had that whole little swirl on martyrdom and I had that conversation with that guy whose sister was up in the middle of the main, you know, really heavy Kingdom Now prophetic movement. And his sister was in the middle of it and her life was being wrecked because she was like a main assistant to one of these main figureheads of the of the prophetic movement and she would see these people get up on stage and do their whole prophecy bit and with i mean with accuracy and power in prophetic ministry and then they all go to dinner and they constantly you know they're just eating lavish lifestyles and meals and and staying in the greatest hotels and it's just like And their justification for it is, the kingdom is now. The blessing is now, and we're receiving the kingdom and blessing. And you really do. You live the lifestyle of the gospel that you preached, for sure. All right, well, we're past time. Let me pray for us, God. We just ask you, we want to be people of truth, God. We want our lives to really imitate what we believe, God, that... Our inheritance is not in this age, that our inheritance is in the age to come, God. We ask you for grace. We ask you, Holy Spirit, come and remove the things that so easily hinder and entangle us, God. We want freedom. We want our lives to be about the gospel. We want truth in our lives. We want clarity of the message. We do, God. We just ask you for grace to conform our lives to the scriptures. That truly our lives would uh, be in accordance with the book of Acts and that uh, that we would be a faithful witness and, uh, and a clear witness, God. We ask you for grace in the name of Jesus. Amen.